What are you doing? What are you up to? And this feeling where we don't see God at work, we don't feel him, it can be really disorienting. It could lead to, uh, to discouragement. It could really kind of throw us off. And sometimes it can even really shake our faith. When we are in that period of time where we wonder, God, are you, are you doing something? Well, Elijah the prophet, I think, felt this very same way. And we're going to look at his life today, and I hope the lessons that he learned will be super helpful uh, for you and for me. So here's kind of the setting. Uh, if you're here last week, we saw the great showdown on Mount Carmel, where Elijah calls down fire from heaven. He dukes it out with all the 450 prophets of Baal. Um, he says the word, and God unleashes rain when there's been you know, a, a drought for several years. And it's just this incredible uh, power act of God through Elijah. And then he comes back home. <laughs> well, he, he runs kind of a marathon back to the palace, and he beats Ahab there, uh, the king. And, uh, and we start in verse, um, verses 1 and 2 of First Kings 19. It starts off like this. They just had this big battle on the mountain, came back to the palace, Verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel, the evil queen who's promoting Baal worship, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, the prophets of Baal. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. So the queen was not impressed with the report on the mountain. And, uh, and she sends this threatening message to Elijah. And as I read this, I thought, there's two huge lessons uh, from Mount Carmel, that whole experience. And the first is that God has dramatically demonstrated that he's the true God. You know, any um, objective onlooker should be able to see that whole scene where, where God sends fire from heaven and burns up not only the sacrifice, but the altar and the water and everything else. Uh, anybody just looking on in an objective viewpoint would say, Yahweh is the true God. <laughs> he's real. He's alive. He's demonstrated that uh, very dramatically. And connected with that, the second lesson from the whole experience is, no matter how dramatically God reveals himself, people will still reject him. And it makes me wonder if that's one reason maybe he's not just constantly doing these dramatic things. It puts more of a, of a burden on our own souls when we keep rejecting him. But in any case, that's what happened. He dramatically demonstrated his, that he's really God, and then we learn that no matter how dramatically he does that, people will still reject him. So Elijah may have expected uh, the nation to uh, repent uh, entirely. Obviously, there was some sort of revival that happened when they saw that, but you get back to the palace and... That revival was not universal. He might have expected uh, God to do something dramatic to follow that up. He gets back. He faces the queen. You know, what's God going to do now? And he waits. <laughs> Nothing. And then maybe he's expecting God to uh, tell him what to do next. We see in the narrative God popping in and saying, Elijah, do this. Now Elijah, go here. Maybe Elijah's expecting these things. And... Uh, and he wasn't seeing them. And this propelled him on this soul-searching journey. 
um, this, this journey of, God, what are you doing? Are you not acting? Are you not uh, working here? And so this morning we're going to first follow his journey, his soul-searching journey, and then we'll discover the great lesson that God had for him at the end of that journey, and then we'll consider how each of us should respond to that same lesson that God gave to uh, Elijah. So verse 3, the soul-searching journey begins. So he had just run basically a marathon from Mount Carmel to, to Jezreel. Verse 3, then he was afraid because of the queen's message, and he arose and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. What says ran for his life, it, it could literally say he, he went or he departed for his soul. And I think either it has a sense of he just ran because he was scared for his life, you know, his physical safety, which is possible, or, or he set out on this journey because of this, this inner crisis for the sake of his, his soul. Like, what do, Lord, what do I do now? And maybe it's a bit of both. And so we see the next leg of his journey is he goes from Jezreel, where the, where the queen was, to Beersheba, which is far south in Jerusalem. Remember right now we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, which I don't know if you could see that map, but that top of the Dead Sea up basically is, is the northern kingdom. And then if you drew a line straight across the top of the, the Dead Sea there lower, that's, um, that's Judah, or the southern kingdom. So he went from way up in the north to the south of the south kingdom um, to Beersheba. Sometimes in the Bible often we hear from Dan to Beersheba. It's kind of from the north to the south is the whole uh, region. And uh, so that's where he went next. And he left his servant there, and he continued on this journey all alone. Verse 4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and he sat down under a broom tree. And so from there he went another full day of journey and sat down under a broom tree. And I could be mistaken because I'm not a botanist, but, uh, but we have broom trees on our property here right out by the basketball hoop um, that property management just put up. I don't know if you've seen it. On your way out, you should check out our new uh, shiny basketball hoop and also our uh, broom trees, which are a little bit of a, um, of a nuisance plant in, uh, in this part of the state. But, um, but can you picture Elijah under here getting his shade? Uh, we can give this away afterwards. And he hid under this broom tree and... Um, alone, and he poured out his heart in distress. Uh, The rest of verse 4. He calls out, Is it enough now, Lord? Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. He'd just been at this huge high point, great victory, amazing display, and now he's saying, God, would you just take my life? I I got nothing. I don't know what to do. From here, it's this soul-searching, God, will you not act? Will you not give me some kind of sign? Will you not point me in some kind of direction? Will you not uh, do something about this problem in the nation? And uh, he says, I'm no better than my fathers. Probably, you know, all of the prophets that came before and the people ignored them. I thought my thing was even more impressive, but nope. It was just like the rest of them. 
And so totally exhausted, he goes, he falls asleep under the broom tree, wondering, God, will you, will you do something? And God does do something. In verse 5, in the middle of that verse, it says, And behold, an angel touched him as he was sleeping. And the angel said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank and he lay down again. So he's feeling like this failure. Is God doing something? And God sends an angel to bake him a cake. So it seems like he kind of missed the significance of that. But if I was feeling down and an angel came from the Lord and woke me up and baked me a cake, I'd be feeling uh, really special. And, uh, and, and that's what he did. And then in, in verse 7, And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise up and eat, for the journey is too great for you. But the angel didn't tell him where to go. <laughs> Just said, you got a big journey. You better eat this. I baked you another cake. And he arose and he ate and he drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So this next, next leg of the journey, he goes all the way down off our map here, way down to... Um, to Mount Horeb, which is the same as Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, where it all went down, where, the, where Yahweh met with Moses and delivered the, the law to, to his people. He headed back to that same spot, and he seems to be trying to retrace and try to capture some of that same magic, so to speak, because he's, he's taken 40 days and 40 nights to do this journey just like Moses was on the mountain for that time. He fasted for that time, just like Moses was, and he goes to the same place that Moses was. Uh, Exodus uh, 34, uh, verse 28 says, so, so he, Moses, was there on Mount Horeb with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So Elijah's going back to where it all went down. He, he wants an, an encounter with God. Verse 9 says, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. Um, literally, it's there he came to the cave and lodged in it or, or dwelt in it. And some commentators suggest maybe this is the cleft in the rock where, where Moses you know, was, was tucked in and hidden when he was on the mountain when Yahweh himself uh, revealed himself. So it, it just seems like Elijah's trying to go back, get in that same cave. It's like, I want to experience God just so, so bad. And there he did experience God. He had an encounter, and God had an enormous lesson for him. So Elijah's burning question on this, on this pursuit was, God, what are you doing? And God's response is, verse 9, he came to this cave, he lodged in it, and the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Well, God's one, or Elijah's wondering what God's doing, and God says, what are you doing? And Elijah responds like this, verse 10, he says, I've been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts, 
For the people of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant, and they've thrown down your altars, and they've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So God says, Elijah, what are you doing? And Elijah says, I'm complaining, (laughs) in essence. And so God delivers this dramatic lesson uh, for Elijah, but ultimately for us. Verse 11, and he said, this is God speaking, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Have we seen in news in recent time really strong winds and what that can do? Imagine winds that are tearing you know, rocks apart. This is quite the wind. And Elijah's probably wondering, okay, Lord, now what are you going to say? Nothing. The Lord was not in that wind. He didn't uh, follow up that wind with any revelation. He didn't follow up that wind with, with any uh, special commentary, with any you know, uh, manifestation of himself. It was just a really, really, really strong wind. And after the wind, an earthquake Have we seen the power of earthquakes in the news recently? The earth shook, the mountain shook, it quaked, things are crumbling. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. God didn't follow it up with any revelation, any any vision, any any, uh, extra information. And after the earthquake, a fire. Have we seen fire, the destructive power of fire in the news lately? Yep. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said again, What are you doing here, Elijah? After the grand displays, the fire and the earthquake and the wind, and, and God giving nothing extra, then there's this quiet. It just gets real calm, maybe a slight breeze, maybe a faint whisper. And Elijah realizes, okay, this is really God. He's going to talk to me. And he comes back out of the cave again. And before he does, he covers his face up with his cloak because he knows he, he can't just look right at God. And sure enough, God speaks to him. God speaks to him after that gentle, quiet breeze. And he says, again, what are you doing here? And he says the same thing. He answers the same thing to God, which is a little surprising. But in in all this, with all the dramatic things, God not there, dramatic, 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 and this is not how God's speaking, and then the still, calm, quiet whisper, this is God's lesson. And it's our main point this morning is that God whispers a whole lot more than he shouts. He's whispering all the time in that quiet, gentle breeze, so to speak. The vast majority of time, God works in gracious whispers. Elijah needed to hear that (laughs) because Elijah had just seen the other side of God who does completely extravagant things when it suits him. Uh, I like Warren Wiersbe's comment on this. He says, uh, 
in essence, God was saying to Elijah, you called down fire from heaven, you had the prophets of Baal slain, you prayed down a terrific rainstorm, but now you feel like a failure. But you must realize I don't usually work in a manner that's loud, impressive, and dramatic. My still, small voice brings the word to the listening ear and heart. Yes, there's a time and a place for the wind, the earthquake, and the fire, but most of the time, I speak to people in tones of gentle love and quiet persuasion. This is what God's doing even right now when we don't see something dramatic. So God repeated the same question, and Elijah gives the same answer in verse 14. He says, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. The people of Israel, they've forsaken your covenant, and they've thrown down your altars, and they killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So now we see how God responds to uh, Elijah that just keeps saying the same thing. Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you'll anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, son of Nimshi, you'll anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be the prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all those knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. This is what God says to Elijah. Um, Go. (laughs) Get back into ministry. Keep doing the things that, uh, that I called you to do in the first place. You don't need a dramatic thing happening to just keep obeying me. He called him back into service, but with this new awareness that I think is really important for us to catch, uh, these two things. One is, it's not about dramatic displays of power. You you could serve me without uh, this dramatic display of power, even though God's totally capable and sometimes does work that way. And secondly, you could serve me with this new awareness that It's not about you, Elijah. Guess what? My next task is for you to start uh, appointing other people to carry on the work. Guess what? You keep telling me that you're the only one left, but there's 7,000 people who never bowed to Baal in the first place, besides those 100 prophets of uh, Yahweh that are hidden out in the cave. And besides all this, Elijah, it's not really about you. (laughs) Just keep serving me. Uh, you, you may have heard this story, I've heard it uh, before, but uh, it's told by H.A. Ironside, about Robert uh, Ingersoll, who was, uh, he was nicknamed the great agnostic um, in the U.S. Uh, in the 1800s. And also his conversation or his interaction with Joseph Parker, who was a congregational minister in, the, in England. Um, Ironside tells the story like this. He says, Ingersoll, the great agnostic, after delivering one of his addresses, He pulled his watch from his pocket and he said, According to the Bible, God has struck men to death for blasphemy. So I will blaspheme him and give him five minutes to strike me dead and damn my soul. There would be a period of silence while one minute went by. Two minutes passed and people began to get nervous. Three minutes and a woman fainted. 
four minutes, and Ingersoll curled his lip. And at five minutes, he snapped his watch shut, put it in his pocket, and said, You see, there's no God, or he would have taken me at my word. So the story was told to Joseph Parker in England. And I love Parker's reply. He says, And did the American gentleman think that he could exhaust the patience of God in just five minutes? I think it's a good, a good response. God's, God's not just always doing these dramatic things. He's not just striking people dead left and right, that blaspheme him, or, or we'd have no people left. Um, he is quietly, patiently whispering. Again, God whispers a lot more than he shouts, and we should be not um, discouraged by this, but greatly, <laughs> greatly encouraged by this. Another quote um, from the Expositor's Bible Commentary, Patterson and Ostell. Uh, God does not always move in the realm of the extraordinary. To live always seeking one high experience after another is to have a misdirected zeal. The majority of life service is in quiet, routine, humble obedience to God's will. I think we need to learn that. We need to know that and say, oh, that's how God works. Elijah sure needed to learn that. I need to learn that. And so here's the rest of the chapter, the response that Elijah did to all this. Uh, verse 19. So Elijah departed from there, and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. So, in other words, he did what the Lord just told him to do. And Elisha, whose side note, I forever get these guys confused of which is which. And finally, I don't know, somebody told me or dawned on me that they're alphabetical. Elijah comes before Elisha. So that's a little bonus there. So Elisha was plowing with the 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12. And Elijah passed by him, and he cast his cloak on him. <laughs> Apparently everybody knew what that meant. And he left the oxen, oxen, and he ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, then I'll follow you. And Elijah said to him, uh, go back again, or what have I done to you? In other words, you know, I'm, I'm not stopping you. And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yoke of oxen, oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Uh, there's a lot we could talk about that little interchange there. It's just incredible how uh, it just seems like Elijah comes and just throws the cloak and immediately Elisha's like, I'll follow you anywhere. And he goes and he, he takes the, the equipment off of the, the oxen that are plowing and he like, makes a fire with that to burn and sacrifice the oxen right there. It's like, this is my, it's like your, all your farm equipment or whatever and just like that. He's, he's fully in. So, but right now I'm thinking about Elijah's response is he finally did just listen to the Lord and get back into service. He got out of his kind of pity party, so to speak. But my focus today is what about our response? <laughs> what, what should we do with this, with this information, with this dramatic lesson from God? And the lesson is, you don't need a dramatic lesson from God. God made a very dramatic statement that uh, you don't need a dramatic statement. So our response, if God whispers more than he shouts, then what we should be doing is paying attention. <laughs> we should be listening 
very closely, we should give careful attention first to his provision. I mentioned earlier, you know, we saw that God sent an angel of the Lord to Elijah to bake him a cake. And it seems like he kind of missed it. This is miraculous provision. God had preserved Elijah in, uh, in behind enemy lines in the widow's home for three years during a great famine. He preserved miraculously. God was preserving Elijah in some very special ways, and it seems like he just kind of forgot. Because at this stage, as we started this chapter, he's like, I don't know what to do. You know, I'm the only one left, and what's going to happen? We need to stop and ponder how God has taken care of us. God has provided for us in so many ways, sometimes just over abundantly dramatic ways, sometimes in, in subtle ways, but he is taking care of us. Uh, last week in our, in our small groups, we were looking at Psalm 136, and here's uh, a part toward the end. It says, He remembered us in our weaknesses. His faithful love, it endures forever. He saved us from our enemies. His faithful love, it endures forever. He gives food to every living thing. His faithful love endures forever. And what should we do? Give thanks to the God of heaven because his faithful love endures forever. No matter how um, delightful or how miserable your life is, uh, there are things we can be thankful to God for. He has been taking care of us. He continues to take care of us. Uh, James reminds us that every good gift, every perfect gift, is ultimately from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Every good, sweet little thing you have is ultimately from the hand of God. And when we feel like, where's God? I want to see him do something impressive. It's time to go back and rehearse, you know, count the blessings. (laughs) And name them out to to God, how he is taking care of us. You can always find something to complain about. And you can always find something to thank God for. And uh, this is a call to to thank God for his provision. Give careful attention to it. Don't miss it like it seems like Elijah did. Uh, Secondly, our response to the fact that, that God whispers a whole lot more than he shouts is we need to give careful attention to his promises. God called attention to um, Elijah that uh, he was not forsaken. He's like, I I will preserve others who also follow me, and you can count on that. Uh, Verse 18 of our chapter, it's as if God is saying, snap out of it. (laughs) Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal. The whole population of, of Cambria and maybe also San Simeon, I don't know, um, that whole, that amount of people that never did worship Baal, and God says, I, I, I preserve them. So you can count on that. And the hundreds in the cave, I've, I've preserved them. This should be a huge encouragement to Elijah. So I think it's important for us to, to understand this that God never promised the absence of conflict. (laughs) He never promised the absence of 
of crisis or the absence of evil in the world. In fact, he actually gave us the heads up that these things will happen. He never promised that uh, dramatic miracles that you're betting. You know, you could just call it up and make this happen. Maybe Elijah was starting to think that he did because that happened in his case. God never promised that every time you sit down for a devotional time with the Lord and read the Bible that it's going to be this mind-blown revelational experience for you. He never promised that's going to happen. He never promised that every time you show up at church, there's going to be this you know, spiritual buzz and you're, you're going to shake and maybe cry and it's going to be exciting every time you, you show up. Uh, he never promised that either. But what has he promised for his children? To never leave you or forsake you? <laughs> Hebrews 13. He promised that he's never going to give up shaping you into the image of Christ. He's going to just keep doing that for you. Uh, Philippians 1.6. He promised you, if you're his child, that right now he's preparing a place for you in his eternal kingdom. That, that's what he's doing. John 14. Matthew 7, he's promised to listen to your every prayer. 2 Corinthians 1, he's promised to comfort you with his spirit. And on and on and on, what God has promised. If you ever feel like shouting, God, will you not do something? God could rightfully call back and say, I'm doing every single thing that I promised right now. That's his response to us. We need to, we need to pay careful attention to his promises. And, and finally, the third thing, the way I think we should respond to the fact that God whispers more than he shouts is give careful attention to his plan. You know, what's he up to? What's he called us to? What has he invited us into? Elijah, he recommissioned him. Um, sent him out, and Elijah obeyed, which is awesome. So whether you experience this dramatic provision or dramatic conversions or dramatic sensations, we still need to just give careful attention to fulfilling what God made us for. Careful attention to his plan. What is God's plan? What has he called us to do? Uh, We can summarize that in various ways. Um, Tony Payne, uh, who... Um, growth curriculum for a course of your life that basically is talking about what on earth are we supposed to be doing here. He summarizes it in these two words of transferring and transforming. So two things, try to catch this. Here's what God's doing. Here's what his plan is and he wants to be part of. One is transferring people into the kingdom of his son. That's a big part of what God's doing in the world and wants you to be part of. And then transforming those forgiven people to be more like Christ. That's it. That's his plan. Transferring, transforming. I I think it was the navigators that said it like this. Befriending sinners to the friend of sinners and bringing up the saints to be like the Savior. Same thing. Transferring, transforming. Inviting people to come and follow Jesus and then, then we're about helping each other be more Christ-like. Jesus said it like this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, you know, initiating them into the family of God in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. 
theologically, we'd say salvation and sanctification. This is God's plan. This is what he's doing, that people would align themselves with Christ and become more and more um, like Jesus, uh, being shaped by, by God. Don't seek this sign from God. He's already re- revealed his basic plan to transfer and to transform. And uh, we need to do this whether God's shouting or, much more likely, uh, whispering. So since God shouts far less than he whispers, we need to pay close attention to how he provides for us and what he's promised us, realizing he's keeping all of those promises and what his plan is, what we should be involved in. And this should just shape us and draw us toward him. And, and it will allow us to trust him even when we don't see the dramatic things happening. So, started off talking about uh, camp and mission experiences and the, the coming down from the, the mountain, so to speak. And uh, if anybody's familiar with that phenomenon, it's people that, that uh, work in camp ministry. <laughs> and um, years ago, the, the worship band at camp was called Everybody Duck, uh, Darren McWaters. And he wrote this great song that I think speaks to this. I'd like to just read a part of it to you. It's called Because You Are, and it starts out, it says, I can't feel you like others around me. I don't feel like kneeling or closing my eyes. Is there something wrong with my heart that I can't see? Or do you feel love still when nobody cries? So I'll praise you if I never feel you, and I'll love you because I know you're there. And if you should choose so, I'm sure one day I'll feel it, but feeling good's never the reason I cared. Because I know in my heart how bad I want to touch you. You must sense this love my soul barely contains. No lack of desire in this desert of worship. I keep singing skyward. It just never rains. But Father, I praise you because you are. Jesus, I love you because you are. Spirit, I worship you because you are. And if no one can see that your love's moving me, well, I'll worship you still and forever will. Because you are. I think this seems to be the attitude of all of our hearts. When we, when we don't see the amazing happening, realize the amazing thing is happening. <laughs> God's doing everything he said he would do. And so I think our challenge as we go out of here is when God whispers, keep worshiping. <laughs> keep saying, God, you are everything you said you are. You are so amazing, incredible. And uh, I need to just stop waiting for the, the crazy stuff to happen and just Get to the business of serving you, of transferring, transforming, inviting that in my life, which you can summarize this as, as worshiping, placing ourselves at his feet. And uh, that's what we've done here this morning. Is we've come to, to worship him because of who he is. The God who does wonders, the God who is in charge of angel armies, and the God who just day after day whispers compassion into our hearts and lives. And... Uh, I'm glad we have a God like that. Let let me pray for us.